This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show for her monthly segment, State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Thank you so much for being with us, Representative. Always a pleasure to have you. I just mentioned before we went on the air, and you said, yes, but I'm already doing the work for all the people in my new district. But then I said, well, but you haven't been sworn in yet. And you said, yes, I know that's true, but I was elected. So why don't you bring our listeners uh, into this conversation, which I think is interesting. Uh, You have a somewhat different district, which you will start representing in January. Tell us about what happened. Right. Well, so um, I think listeners will remember that we passed the redistricting law back in 2021, and we have to do that in the House in particular because we have a constitutional requirement to live in our district one year uh, prior to the election. So the district lines have to shift at least a year before we are elected. So uh, that happened in 2021, and my district changed. The first Hampshire district. The first Hampshire district changed. Many other districts. Districts changed as well. Right, it was, but we'll talk was, about mine. <laughs> right, this is not the Lindsay Sabadosa bill. It, it is, uh, no, it was not just me. It was many, many districts across the state. And in fact, we have some new districts now. We have colleagues in districts uh, who that have never existed before. Uh, we lost a seat in Western Massachusetts. So the Berkshires now is only one through three, not one through four, as previously existed. So there are a lot of very big changes happening. As in the first Berkshire district, the second Berkshire district, and so on? Okay. exactly. Uh, My district name remains the same. It's still the first Hampshire district. And the district includes Northampton, Hatfield, and West Hampton. Those are the, the ones that remained. And the new communities to the district are Williamsburg, Chesterfield, Goshen, Plainfield, Cummington, and Worthington. Can you do that backwards quickly? I can't do it backwards. <laughs> I, I am working on doing it alphabetically. Um, yes, and it's because <laughs> the day you leave one of them out, boy, I can see the headline of the get faux pas from Sabadosa. <laughs> District roiled by being left out I by omission. Like, yes. I guess that headline would have some sort of sports analogy yes. involved. But um, <laughs> I, I do have three towns that begin with W, which I think is very interesting. <laughs> that, that makes life better. It easier. does. Okay. It does. It makes it easier. Okay. And you're sworn in. Is there a ceremony so at the our, state house? Our swearing in ceremony. You think I would know this right off the top of my head, um, but I'm actually still very focused on getting bills over the finish line. But I believe it's it's January 4th. It's the first first Wednesday of January. So we will be sworn in again. Um, it will be for my third term. And and then we will look forward to the governor and the constitutional officers being sworn in right after that. It's a big ceremonial day at the State House. It's multiple ceremonial days at the State House. Yes, it's it's a lot of pomp and circumstance. It is um, it, the State House is always open to the public. People can come in. They set up huge monitors all throughout the building, so you can watch the ceremonies if you want. Um, we do have you do need a ticket to get into the chamber itself because there's very limited seating. Um, you, the House and the Senate have to be in the same room together, so that's just 200 legislators. Um, for the governor swearing in, um, and then, of course, a lot of people want to watch. Anyone worried about COVID or respiratory disease or the flu? We're all worried about that. Um, this is the first time that we're we're back for an official ceremony. Um, last year we were, or last session, rather, we were sworn in via Zoom. Um, so, yes, there is there is a lot of concern about these uh, these illnesses that are going around. And I know I have ordered my new four free tests that President Biden is offering, and I've been testing regularly and uh, masking up in, in public. Will the reps and senators be wearing masks when they're in this chamber this, this there, term? There's not a rule that says that they must be masked. It's always uh, recommended that they are. And, of course, we do we did pass a vaccine mandate for our members. I don't know if we will extend that to new members, but um, it has led to a, a certain level of comfort knowing that at the very least we're all vaccinated. And I know I, we, we've had a lot of events recently where we've all talked about getting our flu shots too. Which I recommend. Highly. Dr. Newman says get your <laughs> flu shot. So listen, Representative Sabado, so since you mentioned the pomp and circumstance, there'll be a new governor sworn in, new lieutenant governor. I would like your reflections on that. But before I ask you that, how about Charlie Baker, head of the NCAA? (laughs) What do you think? 
Um, <coughs> so I'm going to admit I am not the biggest sports person. I had to double check what this new position was. <laughs> but <laughs> uh oh, that, that that just cost you 150 votes. But Easy. I saw him in the governor with basketballs. Uh, there was a she posted a picture this morning of them. So uh, it you know I think that it's it's a very interesting position as uh, I've been reading that this is one of the first times an elected official has gone into that role. They said it's usually college presidents or people who have um, you know some relationship with campus sports. So it will be interesting to see. You know the governor. I think people across Massachusetts say this. He's an extremely likable person. Um, he's he is good at, at negotiating. So I think this will be a great role for him, and I'll look forward to seeing what that means and what connections he continues to have with the legislature. And there's a connection between, of course, Maura Healy and basketball and Indeed. Governor Baker and basketball. Maybe they can bond some more. In They've the been picture, bonding a lot. <laughs> in the picture, she was spinning the ball, though, and he was just holding it. So <laughs> she was. there was definitely a message of her one-upping, <laughs> taking this to the next level. Uh, your thoughts with regard to what changes there will be on Beacon Hill because of a Democratic governor and not the continuation of the Baker Polito uh, administration? Well, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. This is the first time that I've gone through a shift in governor as an elected official. And it's I, I have to say that it's it's a little bit sad and I with no um that that's nothing about more. There goes another 150 <laughs> no. votes. I can tell you, we're going to start. Rep- you know, and the soon-to-be former representative from the first which, well, between I, the NCAA and I'm uh, feeling sad about Charlie Baker leaving. Okay, no, but I do. About, un- it's not actually about Charlie Baker leaving, and it's not about the governor at all. It's just you start to realize how many people do leave the administration. You know, the you Baker mean, pe- is, people you work with exactly. Oh, I, so I, I it's people people in all of the the different executive offices. So you know, I think when we think of the executive branch, we always think of the governor or the president. Um, But there are thousands, thousands of people who work in the executive branch. And some of them will be staying in the new administration and some of them will not be staying. So this is actually a moment of of great uncertainty for a lot of people who don't know what their next career move is, if they're going to, to be there in three weeks. And it makes it a little bit hard as a legislator because we have a lot of things that are going on. Um, you know, just because we're not in formal session doesn't mean the work stops. And we are constantly trying to get things done for our constituents. And that means working with the administration. And when you don't know if they're going to stop their job in two days, it makes it a little challenging. Yeah, I was just kidding about people I, I, about people leaving. And, and I really do understand how that transition is not only the transition for the executive branch, but a transition for the legislative branch and the people who you work with day in, day out, the people you call, the people you ask exactly. for information, the people you need to get something done for a constituent, all that changes. Yes, um, and, and, and those and, are people who've been on speed dial <laughs> for uh, for several years now. So, you know, we're excited to see the, the new governor, the governor-elect, um, start to make some appointments, and that's great. I was actually speaking with some of the members of her transition committees last night, and they're very excited about the policy proposals that she's going to put forward. So that's all wonderful, and I'm very excited. But there is this just slight bittersweet moment that I did not expect. You know, you get excited about elections. I love elections. <laughs> I was very supportive of the governor are going going into the general election and it um it's just this little wave of oh but then things do change but i guess that that's life right well yeah i mean i, I for certainly me, politics <coughs> well for me personally I've, i do believe in, in change in the crucial importance of radical change absolutely it, but the truth is, when it comes to change, I'm not very good at it at all. None of us <laughs> Person- are. <laughs> personally, personally, it's hard. Well, I guess I shouldn't say none of us, but many of us are not, yeah. Uh, and you develop relationships with people. So, um, But the good news is that I think Massachusetts is a small state, and a lot of these people will end up in other positions. As we see, the governor um, is probably not going super far. He'll still be a prominent figure in the state, just in a different role. And uh, and I think that'll be true for a lot of folks in the administration. So. Okay, so I have two questions about policy, since yes. you just mentioned policy. One is I want to know about the bills that you are going to be introducing, promoting, and fighting for in this upcoming legislative session. I'd also like to know your perspective on what you think is going to change and will change because of a new governor, a Democratic governor, Maura Healey, replacing a Republican governor, uh, Charlie Baker. So which one you want to do first, yours or theirs? Let's do theirs first, because okay. that's the continuation, and then we can switch gears a little bit. 
Um, I think that uh, some of the change that's going to happen will, will be really positive. I mean, the legislature is very excited to work with Governor-elect Healy. There, there is just a great deal of anticipation as to what her first budget's going to look like and what some of the policy priorities she'll put forth are. I think she's been very clear housing is at the top of that list. We hear about it every day. The House is excited to move in that direction. We hear about affordability all of the time, and her transition team seems to be um, to be very focused on what they can offer. So, what that looks like, I don't quite know, but I think we're going to see some some very swift action um, in the first few months. And I wouldn't be surprised if she released some major bills that the House took up quickly. And I, I know we were a little disappointed in the economic development bill that some of the tax breaks that we really wanted to see, particularly for seniors, for people with kids, didn't come through. I think she's been very clear she wants to see those tax breaks make it through and I think they'll come through fast in the new session which will be important because uh, costs are rising and uh, I get a lot of emails about the cost of electricity so I'm hoping that the new governor will also do some um, some DPU reform that would be one of my my great hopes but we'll see if that goes through. Representative Sabados, explain this to me if you would please I know and we're going to talk in a moment about the bills that you're going to introduce and promote and every representative and senator has bills that they introduce and fight for during the course of a session. You just mentioned the governor's proposals. Uh, are there more? I mean, I'm not sure the number matters, but are the significant proposals and the ones that end up generally being adopted in one form or another, do they tend to come from legislators or do they tend to come from the executive branch initially? I think that often the governor will file a large omnibus bill on a topic, and it is a good indication that the governor is interested in taking up that work, so there's room for negotiation. The legislators will often rewrite that bill in its entirety, so it doesn't look much like what the governor filed. But the governor filing something is always a good sign of, yes, we, we want to sit down and negotiate. Um, so I, I think that we will see that happen with the Healy administration. Uh, Governor-elect Healy was also very good as attorney general at promoting bills. She would always have you know six or seven that she, she picked out and threw a lot of support behind. So I, I think she has that already sort of in her DNA of how to do that, and I expect it will continue. So do you expect an economic development bill of some port, some import from the governor being proposed? And I very much imagine there will be an economic development bill. I imagine that there will be a housing bill. Um, there's a lot of talk about uh, a housing bond bill, so money that the state can borrow in order to pay for housing, as well as an economic, I'm sorry, uh, an environmental bond bill. I think that's the other thing that she's talked a lot about, the need for not only to build housing, but to make sure that we're greening the economy as we, as we expand. And so I think you'll see those things come up quickly. We are speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. We're not going to ask her to do the towns and cities backwards <laughs> or in reverse alphabetical order. Next month. <laughs> <laughs> but we are going to take a break. <clears throat> we'll be right back. We're going to ask the representative, what are the bills you're going to introduce now for the legislature and we'll fight for this session? We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Authorization, enrollment, and activation activities are required. Receive all services. Contact institution for details. Two lattes, please. On me. Yeah? My free Casasa cash back checking account surprised me with sweet cash rewards. So thoughtful. Casasa cash back simply appreciates me. It also refunds my ATM withdrawal fees. Huh. My mega bank account just takes money out every month without even asking. Sounds like it's time to move on. Take back the special treatment you deserve with Casasa cash back. Ask for Casasa by name at Franklin First or online at franklinfirst.org. Federally insured by NCU. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, 
and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it, and if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Orthopedic injuries don't just happen to athletes. Muscle and ligament tears can happen from a golf game, tennis match, or even shoveling snow. I'm Dr. Connor Ziegler, sports medicine and board-certified orthopedic surgeon with New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Our surgical team here in Western Mass is ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury from shoulders to elbows, wrists, hands, hips, knees, ankles, and everything in between, including physical therapy and regenerative medicine, such as orthopedic laser treatment and PRP. Hey, Pat, who's on the sidelines this week? Running back Ramondre Stevenson is. He suffered an ankle injury in the first quarter of Monday's game. He's expected to play this Sunday. Devontae Parker sustained a head injury on a 10-yard catch in the first quarter. His return for this Sunday is questionable. And Patriots safety Devin McCourty was removed from Monday's game by the NFL's concussion spotter. He's questionable to return for Sunday's game in Las Vegas. So if you're looking for the best bona fide care around, visit neortho.com to schedule an appointment. With locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and Northampton, our team will get you back in the game. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Note that Dan Torres is on the board today. Um, Representative, I want to ask you about the bills that you're going to introduce and promote this session. What are they and why? Well, uh, we're still working on on the full list, but right now I think we have about 25 um, that we've decided to file. <clears throat> We, uh, meaning you, office, are going to. My office. Is going, is going to, you are going to file 25 bills. 25. So some wow. of them are, are bills that we filed in the past. Um, some we've gone through the list and you know tried to be very judicious about what we think there might be an opportunity to actually get through if things have, you know, the circumstances have changed. But um, some of the things that I'm very excited to be working on, uh, there's one in particular that um, we don't quite have all the language done yet, but we're in a really good place. Um, and it is a piece of legislation around health data privacy. So um, we live in a country where a lot of our health information is shared, and it's shared with a lot of non-medical entities. I bet there are people at home who have things like Fitbits or apps that track different things uh, about their health, whether it's their sleep patterns or what their heart rate is or uh, a wide variety of things, how many steps they take. And oftentimes that data can be shared with other entities. So this legislation is simply asking for an informed consent uh, for those those apps. So if your health information is going to be collected and then sold, you should know that it's going to be collected and sold. Um, so this is something that we've been working on. We're trying to be very careful, of course, with, with the, the legislation to get it just right. We don't want to bump up against any constitutional issues, but this is something that other states are looking at as well. Um, it, of course, becomes even more complicated when we talk about um, you know, states that are, are trying to find out information about transgender individuals or who's accessing abortion care. So the scope of this legislation is very broad. Um, we're not focused on any one particular type of health information, but we do think that there's a moment um, right now for states to sort of push back and say, okay, we need to, we need to step in and look at data sharing. Um, and I, I was actually just speaking the other day to someone who used to work for Senator Kennedy uh, and who worked with him to pass uh, genetic information, the genetic information discrimination law so that you cannot be discriminated against based on your genetic information. So it looks like there's some precedent and I'm very excited about, about this legislation. Other bills that you're going to be promoting? Yes. Um, so out of the um, the legislation last session that protected reproductive rights, there was a component of it around um, prescriber prescription 
uh, I'm sorry, pharmacist prescribed hormonal contraception. So I am working with uh, Rep. Christine Barber out of uh, Somerville, and we are trying to get Massachusetts to be one of the states that has pharmacist prescribed hormonal contraception. We are in a moment where it is extremely difficult to find a primary care physician. Um, it can often be months. Um, and one of the things that we're hearing is a lot of people look for a primary care physician and want to get on birth control and then end up pregnant months later. So pharmacist prescribed is, is one way to sort of make sure that people have access. And then um, the legislation requires that the pharmacist help them connect with local health authorities. So this well. is giving uh, authority to a pharmacist that they don't already have? Yes. Yes, it expands <clears throat> scope. And this is something that actually happened during the pandemic. Um, we saw pharmacist scope expansion with um, with the COVID shots, with um, prescribing um, antivirals. So this is sort of on par with where the country is headed. In fact, other states have passed this. We would be the 17th. We'll see. Michigan is in line right now, but it just went through in South Carolina as well. So we've been looking at what other states are doing. It, it is actually law in California. So there, there are many millions of people in the country are already taking advantage of this service. We'd like to have that happen here as well. So one bill you're promoting is the Medical uh, Information Privacy Act. Yes. The other is this expansion of authority for birth control for pharmacists. Any other bill you want to tell us about? Oh, there are so many. Um. <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm getting back to the, the number 25 in just a minute, but maybe there's a third bill in particular you want to mention. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, there was one that was actually brought to me um, by, by local constituents, which is just something really simple, and it's around the MassSave program. So uh, MassSave is something that you can call, and you, they will help you winterize or green your house um, at a discounted rate. It's actually a wonderful thing to do now as energy bills in, uh, keep increasing, but um, one of the things we don't know is who is getting these services and which zip codes are taking most advantage and how we can expand that program to perhaps zip codes that are not using it. So we have a very simple bill that we're putting in that just requires zip code collection for a mass save so that we can make sure there's equitable distribution of the program throughout the state. So that's a, a tiny but I think important one. I, you mentioned 25 bills that yes. you'll be <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> introducing or supporting. Um, are those 25 bills yours or are these bills that you'll be jointly introducing and supporting with other representatives? So generally, the, uh, it will at least be me and a senator that's filing the legislation. Um, I am, though, this session in particular trying to be very strategic about partnering with different people in the House around legislation. So we aren't, we haven't quite um, shifted out who's doing what yet, but um, we are in pretty constant conversation about ideas and who might like to hop on a bill. It's just really helpful to have a, a partner as you push through legislation. So the bills generally do have more than one sponsor, or they generally don't, or it's, there's no generally? There's, there's no generally. It, it really depends. Uh, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned transition and individuals leaving. One of the aspects of your job as a rep- as your job as a representative, every representative's job is constituent services, yes. which is kind of amorphous, and people scratch their head a little bit sometimes except when they need something from the state government and don't know where to go and need help and constituent services. Tell us about that part of your job, and will your staff who deal with that aspect of your job, do they are they the same people? Uh, yes. So I, I've, I have two legislative aides right now, Julia Mathis, who handles most constituent services cases, and Max McDermott, who does some constituent work, um, but also focuses primarily on, on legislation. Um, and so they, they will be the same people. Uh, let, let's hope they're the same people. I know it's, um, it is a tough job. It's not a super well-paid job. And oftentimes people, people leave. Uh, luckily, they often leave for the administration, so we can continue to... Uh, to have a good relationship with them and, and understand what they're doing. But um, they will be there working in constituent cases, which, um, you know, I think just this week we've uh, helped obtain birth certificates from overseas. We've uh, helped with RMV cases. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of requests about help with uh, licensing and credentialing through the insurance companies, uh, actual fair reimbursement from insurance companies. We get a lot of calls about that lately. So, Representative Sabadosan, this is your last time with us until the new year. A final thought on your hopes for the new year? 
Well, I have several pieces of legislation I am still trying to push through the state house, so <laughs> I, am, I am hopeful that uh, those bills will go through. We have one that just passed the house that needs to get through the Senate. We have one that's before on the end dock. of the year. Yes, wow. We have one that's on dock in the house, and we're hoping that it will get on the agenda. It's very hard right now to be the person jumping up and down and saying, "This is really important. Please do it before the end of the year," um, because of course it does have to bounce to the Senate, back to the House, back to the Senate. And Otherwise, the you start test. over. In Otherwise, the next you start over. So I'm hoping to have to start over on as few pieces of legislation as possible. We also have um, some major constituent issues in some of the new communities that we're trying to work through. And then, of course, just getting to know everybody. My um, my January calendar is a lot of, uh, of evening meetings with select boards all through the, the new communities. So I'm looking forward to that. And, um, and I'm also looking forward to hopefully just a tiny bit of sleep over the holidays. We're going to leave it there. State Representative Lindsay Sabados, we really appreciate your time with us every month. Thank you so very much. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This week, Senator Eric Lesser gave his final goodbye speech to his colleagues in the Senate. Lesser chose not to run for re-election after losing the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor to Kim Driscoll in a race that was divided starkly between the eastern and western portions of the state. In his farewell remarks, Lesser warned his colleagues about the problems posed by the growing east-west divide. Massachusetts is growing increasingly divided along economic and geographic lines. The gulf between many of our communities, especially our eastern and western halves, is more significant than ever. Left unchecked, that divide will bring our whole state down. Lesser also held a Western Mass Appreciation Night at White Lion Brewery last night. Outgoing Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker announced he is taking a job as president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, better known as the NCAA. Baker is a former basketball player for Harvard, but admitted the career move is unconventional for him. He will now run the multi-billion dollar industry that oversees more than a half million student-athletes. East Hampton City Councilors are questioning why a grand opening party for the new Mountain View School Building cost $18,000. Councilors are expected to vote on the appropriation next Wednesday after the Finance Committee unanimously approved the request using money from cannabis stabilization funds. The party was held on October 22nd and included live music and entertainment from local BMX riders. Snow in the hills with over a foot of accumulation possible in some spots today. Mainly it's rain in the valley, but watch out for some light accumulations of snow in Franklin County today, a high of 36 to 40. Any rain changes back over to snow showers tonight everywhere, an overnight low of 28 to 34. Mixture of sun and clouds tomorrow, a high of 36 to 40. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Comité de la Cámara que investiga los disturbios en el Capitolio celebrará su reunión final el lunes, concluyendo su investigación de un año y medio al pedirle al Departamento de Justicia que investigue posibles delitos. El presidente del Comité, el representante Benny Thompson, demócrata de Mississippi, ha dicho que el Comité hará referencias criminales al Departamento de Justicia y recomendará el enjuiciamiento, pero no ha revelado quiénes serían los objetivos o si el expresidente Donald Trump estaría entre ellos. Le correspondería a los fiscales federales decir si seguir con las referencias para el enjuiciamiento. Los legisladores han sugerido que los cargos contra Trump podrían incluir conspiración para defraudar a los Estados Unidos y obstrucción de un procedimiento oficial del Congreso. Las recomendaciones del comité aumentarían la presión política sobre el Departamento de Justicia mientras investiga las acciones de Trump. En otras informaciones, el Movimiento de Puerto Rico por un Mayor Autogobierno recibió un impulso el jueves en la Cámara de Representantes de Estados Unidos que aprobó un proyecto de ley para un referéndum sobre tres posibles futuros, aunque la medida tenía pocas posibilidades de ser aceptada por el Senado. La Ley del Estatus de Puerto Rico describe los términos para un referéndum vinculante sobre las tres opciones, independencia total, la condición de Estado de los Estados Unidos o soberanía con asociación formal de los Estados Unidos, similar a las Islas Marshall 
Marshall y Micronesia. El representante demócrata Raúl Grijalva, el patrocinador original del proyecto de ley, dijo que ya sea que la medida obtenga una votación en el Senado o no, aún así sentará un importante precedente histórico para Puerto Rico. Han habido seis referéndums sobre el tema desde la década de 1960, pero no fueron vinculantes. Solo el Congreso puede otorgarle a Puerto Rico la estadidad. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly segment with Max Page, Your State You. As we like to say, Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and we knew Max Page before he was, well, Max Page. Well, not exactly, but that's the general idea. Max, thank you so much for being with us. Listen, you, as the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, had a big week last week. You rolled out, or the MTA rolled out, its legislative agenda for this coming session, Following up on our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, I would love to hear from you what the Massachusetts Teachers Association has in mind for this legislative session. What are the MTA's priorities? What will you be pushing for? Max, talk to us. Thanks, Bill. Yes, it's an exciting time. Obviously, um, we, we rolled out a legislative agenda following on the incredible victory on the fair share amendment, question one on the ballot which sets us up for um, investments in public education, pre-K through higher ed, um, because that, that bill, that amendment to our constitution will pr produce about $2 billion a year, and it has to go to public education, pre-K through higher ed, and our transportation system. So we're, we're excited to like launch this, knowing that there is now a permanent fund um, for for those investments. So we had actually an event at the State House on December 1st, specifically talking about our higher ed investment needs. And um, that's uh, one of our five priorities. We're really limiting ourselves to five key priorities. And one is a major reinvestment in public higher education, making our, our public campuses, all 29 of them, high quality and debt free. That's really important that we provide um, access to students so that they graduate with zero debt. Right now, a UMass student graduates with an average of about $32,000 in debt, and that's risen very fast over the past number of years. So um, we want to invest in our, make sure there's enough for um, fair wages for staff and faculty. We stop the exploitation of adjunct faculty. These are people who often teach one course, get paid very little, no health insurance, no, no pension benefits, and have been used by campuses uh, to deal with underfunding of public higher education for the past couple of decades. And we also want to green our campuses, fix our buildings, make them green, self safe, and and healthy. So those are some of the those are some of the pillars of a higher ed agenda. And we're going to be refiling our Cherish Act, which is a this is the bill that we filed last time, last two times, frankly, to really lead to a big investment in public higher ed. So that's number one. Um, we had a whole separate event on that on December 1st. It was, it was the largest event in three years in the state house, it seems, since they closed for the pandemic. Um, and then there's the second part. Part number two is further investments in pre-K-12. Now, um, listeners may know we passed in 2019 the Student Opportunity Act, which is steadily each year more money is going into our public schools, especially um, the schools that have the least. So. It's a very, very progressive formula. So places like Holyoke and Springfield and Fall River, New Bedford, um, Pittsfield, North Adams, these places are getting um, the lion's share of that investment. But we think there's more needed, and there's lots of districts who are not the, the very poorest in terms of the income of their family members, but need, but need investment. So we're calling for new investments in counselors and nurses and librarians and lifting the wages of our paraprofessionals, the education support professionals who do such important work and yet are paid literally poverty wages. So that's a, that's part two is uh, investing in pre-K-12 further. Number three is getting rid of the high stakes testing regime. 
it's time and lots of people school committees and superintendents and parents and uh, and the mta and even the the center of education reform the harvard grad school of education says it's time to overhaul the mcas so this is the year where we're going to say let's take away the high stakes the punitive elements of our testing regime and start on a process of developing a much better holistic way of looking at um, our, how our schools are doing on a whole host of issues, not just a, a narrow set of academic ones. And then the last final two is right to strike uh, for public workers, which has been denied for over 100 years. And the final one is um, a fair and dignified retirement for our retirees. And I can go into the details, but our we have a very, it's a, I'll summarize it this way. We have a very good pension system for retired educators as long as you don't live too long. That sounds that sounds dire. Listen, Max, so much to unpack <clears throat> with what you've yeah. said. Uh, let me let me hit some of the high points. Uh, of, I I think uh, first you mentioned the importance of increased funding for higher education, and then you say there that there is also a critical need for increased funding for pre K through twelve. So I want to know how the MTA can possibly make decisions about how to divvy up the pie, which is now one and a half to two billion dollars bigger uh, with the fair share amendment. But there are competing uh, 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 demands for for the use of that money, and we haven't talked about even talked about how the money is going to be divvied up between transportation and education, which is part of the fair share amendment. So could you comment on that for a minute, please? Yeah, so I, I, there is no formula for dividing it up. There's not going to be a kind of formula that, oh, X percent goes here, there. I think the argument we're making is here are important needs um, and we now have the money for it. And no doubt other groups as well are going to be making that argument, including from the, the transportation side. And that's all fine. And I think we have to think of this as this is the $2 billion from fair share. We also have, as many know, still a, a lot of money. We're doing very well tax-wise in the state. And so um, there's other sources as well for these funds. But we're making the case for two-thirds of the, I mean, two, there's three parts of, of the fair share amendment. Public education, affordability, public higher ed, and roads, bridges, and public transportation. So MTA has a lot to say, especially about those first two. Although, of course, we, our our members and our families, the students, travel on the same roads and the same public transportation systems, and so we support that as well. Let me ask you this: You mentioned the right to strike. Public employees don't have a right to strike in Massachusetts. You aren't asking for legislation that changes that law. And do you think that's correct? You think that has a chance? I, I, Bill, not to be cheeky, but I don't answer those questions. Like we believe it's important. We're going to make the case. Uh, you know, that, you know, we don't put a finger to the wind. We think we know this is important to our members. We know it's just and right. It's a basic human and labor right to be able to say uh, against the boss who holds all the power to say, you know what, if necessary, to achieve the schools working conditions and students learning conditions that we need, we have to be able to withhold our labor. And and frankly, our members are doing it anyway. They did it in Dedham, they did it in Sharon and Andover, and now in one week they did it in Haverhill and Malden. They do it not because it's fun or they want to do it, but because it's necessary in order to achieve um, to better conditions for learning and working that the school committee seems in those places had been unwilling to provide. And the end result is a better contract, which means better working conditions and learning conditions for students. We think it should be ratified at the state level. And one thing we're suggesting is that um, that there should be six months of real negotiate, good faith negotiations, and then the right kicks in afterwards. We're committed to the collective bargaining process in which employer and employees uh, represented by their unions debate at the table, exchange ideas, get to a conclusion. We think giving that a, a certain amount of time, say six months, um, is right. And then after that, the, the, the employer cannot just delay and delay and delay as they did in Brookline and Haverhill and Malden, and there needs to be a chance for, the, for 
our members to bring a divisive a conflict to a conclusion, which is what happens when there's a strike. Let me ask you about your statement about MCAS as another replacement of MCAS as another priority of the MTA. <clears throat> We're going to spend more time on this in coming weeks, but big picture in the minute we have left, is, is the MTA going to look at some alternative methodologies for assessing the students' progress? Because MCAS, for all of its failures, and it, it is many, um, it has in its favor, at least it is an attempt to assess whether students are making progress. And if you don't have MCAS, which I, and I think it's a terrible system, this high-stakes testing, um, there has to be something in place. So you're, what's going to happen? So two, two things, Bill. The system you have in place, the best system of all, you have educators. Educators assess their students every single day. The notion that I've sometimes heard, like, well, there's no assessment going on, like, that's, that's just wrong, flat out wrong. Secondly, what we're, the, it is federal law still to continue to offer, a, a, to require a standardized test from third grade through 10th grade. That will not change. Oh, really? There will still be a test. And therefore, but our view is, then it will be maybe serve much more of its purpose because it won't have this high stakes element where everyone feels, my goodness, we have to narrow our curriculum because we've got to score well because this town's doing better than us. Instead, it'll be a diagnostic test. The way it was when I was a kid at Wildwood Elementary School and middle school and high school in Amherst, which is something came through the California test of basic skills. I got it. I got it. I see. I All see right. what you're saying. You're still going to have a test, but it's not high stakes. It's assessment. Exactly. It's helping teachers to understand and educators to understand where the kids need help. Exactly. Got it. And you can't take over districts. Um, you know, they use the MCAS to take over Holyoke. It's been a patent total disaster there. There is something like 30 or 40 percent turnover of educators every year there because people don't want to be, work in a place with no collective bargaining rights and uh, this takeover by the state, no democratically run school system. So so many of the elements of MCAS have been a disaster. Let's get back to it as being diagnostic and then develop fuller assessment systems that look at the, whole, the development of the whole child. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking to Max Page, who is, the, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Really appreciate all your time every week, Max. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peen off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. I once had a customer who asked us to make a very special fruit basket. I want 25 pounds of bananas, he said, with a note attached that reads, I'm bananas over you. Will you marry me? You know, I've always wondered about their wedding cake. At State Street Market, we make fruit baskets. Of course we do. But just because it's a basket doesn't mean you've got to fill it with fruit. How about a basket filled with what, soda pop or microbrews? There are Chardonnay baskets, Merlot, Shiraz. Give us a price range and we'll fetch you a combination of bottles from the wine cellar that'll make someone dizzy with delight. Oh, we do baskets. Local goat cheeses and six kinds of crackers. Cookie baskets based on the cities of the world. Milano, Brussels. We've even put together the ingredients for the perfect minestrone. The fresh vegetables, the spice jar, the pasta. Hey, if you can dream it, State Street can put it in a basket. State Street Deli, State Street Fruit, State Street Wines and Spirits, Northampton delivery too. I'm Tony Warden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a safe and healthy new year. Hi, this is Teresa from the 63 Federal Street Office of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I would like to wish all of our customers and their families a Christmas that's merry and bright and a happy new year filled with love, health, and happiness. Hi, this is Mandy. And this is Rachelle from, from Greenfield, Greenfield Cooperative, Cooperative Bank. Bank. Wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the other holidays you may celebrate this season. Hi, this is Jane Wolf, Senior Vice President of Residential Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. 
I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year. Hello, I'm James Alexander, Vice President and Commercial Lender located in Shelburne Falls. I want to wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season from the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. This is Chelsea. And this is Maggie. From the Commercial Loan Department. We want to wish our family, friends, and customers a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis. Donabel, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Agano Machiko Untitled is an exhibit at Smith College Museum of Art in Northampton, and lucky for us, it is up through May of 2023. Here to speak about the work is Yao Wu Jane Chase Carroll, Curator of Asian Art at Smith. Welcome. Thank you, Donabelle, for inviting me. Thank you, Bill, for having me on your show as well. Now, Yao, this is a gorgeous installation. Can you tell us a little bit about the artist Agano Machiko for those who haven't heard of her before. Sure, yeah. Artist uh, Agano Machiko, uh, she actually was trained in traditional weaving in the textile department um, of Kyoto City University of Arts in the late 1970s. But she actually quickly uh, moved on to make fiber art installations um, that she's mostly um, known for today. Um, in the late um, 1990s, she began to knit together fishing line and also steel wire in um, gutter stitch uh, with oversized needles. And that's what we see on, on view at SMA, the Smith College Museum of Art now. Um, it's a very typical work of hers. Could you, you know, since we are on radio, could you try and describe the installation for us, which I believe you should really experience in person, but just to sort of titillate us. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, as you say, Danabelle, it's really a work that you will need to experience in person. Um, it's a large scale installation. It occupies the entire space of the Asian art gallery at our museum, um, from floor to ceiling, um, to the four uh, walls as well. Um, basically, um, she does this, um, kind of neat forms. Um, she needs them together with this um, gutter stitch that I was talking about. And then um, she forms this kind of sculpture of forms with fishing line and um, steel wire. And then um, at certain places, she stick the um, neat forms in um, pulp as well, in a type of paper pulp. So mm -hmm. there are times, there are places where it feels even more sculptural, like more substantial in form as well. And then light plays off of the um, surface of this installation. So um, it's, it's it's just simply amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can, it's, it's, it's great in that you can walk through, walk under and around these works. Now her elaborately woven structures use these sort of translucent or neutral colored materials, which allow the character of the space or the surrounding space imbue the installation. How does the artist choose the material she uses? Are they very specific? to say, you know, the fishing line to where she is in Japan. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really great question. Um, I mean, she really thinks that the materials themselves are of most significance in her work. So she doesn't try to actually hide the materials. In a way, she kind of uh, resides into the background as an artist, but sort of helps bring out the materiality of the line and the uh, stairwell that she works with, right? And the paper as well. Like she doesn't want to beautify it in a way. She wants to show the kind of the roughness, the kind of natural um, quality of the paper pulp as well. And 
definitely she was um, has always been inspired by uh, natural elements. And um, I would even argue that um, the focus or kind of the theme of her uh, art installations are in fact really to capture element um, elemental forces such as wind and line and one and sorry a wind and light found in, in nature. Um, and yeah, the paper pulp is made from um, a type of mulberry tree called Kozo. So that's native to Japan. And of course, as we know, like Japan is uh, huge uh, in kind of fishing industry as well. So the fishing line is significant as well. And I will say also that there is a contrast between the two um, lines, two types of line wire. So the fishing line is more translucent, whereas the steel um, kind of a wire is, is um, more substantial. It kind of bounces off um, the light even uh, more. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, a, it's amazing because the fishing line, I mean, they look, even though they are very physical materials, you can see them, they create a form when you look at them at a distance, but they, they seem very ephemeral as if they could literally disappear if you just, if you stare at them long enough. And uh, I think that's what the, the magic and the beauty is of this installation. Now, how did the sculpture come to Smith? How did you choose this work? Yeah, so in fact, back in 2004 at our museum, we had a special exhibition called Confronting Tradition, Contemporary Art from Kyoto. It was not curated by me, but by my professor and more at Amherst College, who was a consulting curator uh, of Asian art for our museum prior to my appointment as the first Asian art curator for our museum. So he um, Invite, invited uh, five contemporary artists from Kyoto to come to Smith to do site-specific installations. And um, this particular installation was um, specifically commissioned for this space, which at the time was not even the Asian Art Gallery, but now this space has um, actually already become the Asian Art Gallery. So it's perfect for me to bring it out, um, to show it in the same space, but with a lot of uh, upgrade and renovate, renovated like kind of elements. Um, actually very much imitating um, nature as well. Uh, the floor and the ceiling is a transformed space. So it's giving a new context to the, um, to the installation from 2004. I'm so happy that they've decided to create an actual wing for Asian art and that you are now the curator of Asian art there. So yeah, how do folks get to see this show? Because really, it's, you've got to see this. Yeah, it's accessible uh, during our regular uh, hours from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. from Tuesday to uh, Sunday. So basically we open every day, 11 to 4, except for um, Mondays. Except for Mondays. And you can also go online at scma.smith.edu. Yao Wu, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I can't wait to see the show. I haven't seen it either, but just looking at the images, I need to get there. And during this time of year too, it's just a nice magical place to be in and sit in. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and what I want to know, and I want to know next time, because this exhibit's going to be up for a while. Yes, Yawu? It'll be up through... Yes, until um, like next summer. So I, hope, I mm -hmm. hope you'll come back, because it sounds totally fascinating. I, I want to learn from you what it is that your experience of this, and from you too, Donabelle, what your experience of this has taught you, what your take-homes are, that's something that you didn't expect. So I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that, because I want to know about your experience of this art. <laughs> thank, thank you both so very, very much. Always a fascinating discussion that you bring to us, Donabelle. Thank you so very much. This has been Artbeat. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you. The beat goes on. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. Hey, everyone. It's Tina Marie, co-pilot of The Cambridge Connection. I'm also a certified credit counselor. For 25 years, I've been helping people have a better relationship with money while getting out of debt. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP, join me, Gordon, and our variety of amazing experts who stop by to offer great advice navigating the daily financial maze of life. Bitcoin and crypto expert Ben Noble stops by to give an update on the state and fate of this unique currency. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. 
A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock.